Hello, I am Dr. Stephen Gambesha, Professor of Health Services Administration in one of Drexel's Health Professions Colleges. I am the Director of the Doctor of Health Science, an interprofessional degree offered by Drexel. Welcome to another episode of the Dragons Remember podcast, which addresses the issue of coronavirus pandemic, which started in late 2019. Few people alive today lived through the Great Depression in the US or a world war. However, we have seen horrific terrorist attacks from foreign and now domestic actors that affected select cities, towns, and places. We have seen and felt natural disasters of wind and water, fire and quakes that affected states and regions. In these past calamities, lives were lost, things were ruined, and life changed for many in significant ways. However, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic is reaching every person in the US, in every place where we live, work, learn, play, and even where we pray. Recently, I was asked by a popular news outlet to, quote, evaluate the states with the best infrastructure for handling the coronavirus outbreak. They asked, what are the top five indicators? One indicator for sure is philosophical in that public health officials understand that they have the major responsibility to protect public health. An important section of the Constitution, health and welfare, gives strong authority to the states and subsequently localities to protect, preserve, and promote the health, safety, even morals, and general welfare of its people. This is often referred to as the police powers in the Constitution. Now, a guiding rationale for public health is that those at the local level are in the best position to determine what needs exist for the people. Why risk judgment from those outside this state, such as Washington, when the state and residents and public officials are better situated and acutely aware of public health needs? This principle of local responsibility cannot be abrogated, especially in times of crisis. Another principle is that policymakers have a respect for the official offices of public health, whether state or local. This includes appointing a highly qualified health official who has not only medical and public health knowledge, but also public administrative acumen. Health and welfare departments in states are vast with many employees, big budgets, and often complex systems. Too often, governors or mayors give perfunctory attention to who sits in this seat. Furthermore, the legislators need to have a deep respect and high regard for the office and the person. Too often, this is neglected in states and localities. A final indicator that I will mention, and there are others, for an effective public health response to a crisis such as COVID 
is focusing on the problem definition and policy alternatives and leave the political circumstances to the political actors. Sure, public health leaders need to be aware of political circumstances among legislators, public opinion, the media, and pundits, but they should not be of the politics. Public health officials can easily engage in mission creep and lose credibility. While playing the advocacy role is exciting and important, much needs to be done in analyzing and advising decision makers. Often public health leaders, they may go off script from performing these essential duties of analyzing and advising. Policies and programs should be evidence-based, performed impartially and without bias, and free of an ideological or political partisan bent. Dr. Ravel Nelson is a graduate of Drexel University with a master in public health and a PhD from Drexel's Dornsife School of Public Health. She has served as the Director of Environmental Services at our Philadelphia Department of Public Health for the past 10 years. She is the author of Breast Cancer Politics. Now this work examines the environmental causation of breast cancer. Also, Emily Wooderman graduated from Drexel with a master in public health and a concentration in epidemiology. She has worked to offer guidance to pregnant or postpartum women with hepatitis C, a viral infection that causes liver disease. For the past several months, she has supported COVID-19 efforts as a liaison for the PA Department of Health, as well as a screening supervisor for isolation and quarantine sites. Thank you. Uh, if you don't mind, let's begin by discussing your pre-pandemic experience. What was your work life uh, like before the pandemic hit? What was your department focused on? And, and perhaps you could walk us through a typical pre-pandemic day for your division. Sure, absolutely. So um, if I could, environmental health services is one of eight divisions, programmatic divisions within the health department. And environmental health services is responsible for four specific program areas. Um, the Office of Food Protection, which conducts food inspections and inspections of hospitals and nursing homes. And, and from a food safety purview, we also conduct inspections of mobile vendors. There is the Environmental Engineering Program, which focuses on tattoo and body art and tobacco enforcement and institutional inspections. Vector Control Services, which focuses on uh, West Nile virus, mosquito-borne disease, as well as rodent-borne disease, including rat violations, and then Lead in Healthy Homes program, which focuses on um, issues associated with lead poisoning and asthma in children and impacts of the indoor environment on children's health. So a typical day in the life of environmental health services director would be to direct through subordinate managers and supervisors activities of inspections, 
Um, typically, we have about 150 staff and 90% of the teams are in the field conducting inspections and um, investigations. And so prior to the pandemic, we were preparing for, you know, the, our, our seasons for um, summer uh, feeding and, and swimming pools, and we were preparing for the West Nile virus and and our new landlord-led law that was launched and the typical food inspections and making sure that we were gearing up for the special event season, which Philadelphia has a great deal of very rich special events that occur throughout the uh, spring, summer, and fall months. So the typical day was just kind of having discussions and meetings and planning for all of our normal activities. So now I'd like to shift to discuss how the pandemic has affected your division, starting from your earliest memories of the pandemic. So when did you personally and your division first become aware of the virus and what was your initial response? Did you think much about it and how did it make you feel? I think my initial um, concepts of the, or kind of information about the pandemic actually started um, last fall um, because I also teach environmental health, uh, undergraduate environmental health for um, uh, undergrad public health students at Temple University. And so I, uh, my students, that was one of the topics of discussion uh, regarding coronavirus and COVID-19. Uh, we spent some class time discussing, you know, kind of the, the virus and the transmission and then as time went on um, during, I think my earliest kind of uh, indication, we have monthly division director meetings with the health commissioner. And so it, I would say, you know, we had some presentations about the virus in January and, and in February as a leadership team or division of disease control within the department shared infra information because that's essentially what we do. We have a preparedness units, which is very robust in um, within the health department. So they had shared some information as well. And then I would say it was the commissioner's meeting that occurred um, early in March, where it was recognized that, you know, we would need to have a response. And, you know, really the commissioner um, expressing the fact that the enforcement aspect of COVID requirements, especially as they pertain to, um, you know, commercial establishments would probably fall on, um, you know, onto environmental health services to handle. Thank you. So you mentioned the delegation of tasks to the Division of the Environmental Health Services took place, you said, roughly in March? Yep, at the beginning of March. And then, um, so we started going through our, uh, we have what's called a continuity of operations plan, our COOP plan. We went ahead, um, we keep tabs on our COOP plan within environmental health services. And uh, so we went over that plan as a, as a department, as well as an internally with the division. And then um, I would say maybe the, maybe a couple days after uh, the, the commissioner's meeting, and those meetings usually happen, I believe, the second Thursday of the month, um, the first through the second Thursday of the month, and soon after that, um, we began our plan of kind of who's going to be working, what, you know, what is going to be our response 
to the stay at home order, as well as what is going to be our response to ensure that there is food safety and um, basic infrastructure to deal with rat complaints. And um, we had some houses in progress for lead remediation work. So we needed to make sure that, um, you know, in certain childcare establishments that would need to be open that we um, kind of had a plan in place of how we were going to handle those issues and, you know, who was going to be working, who wasn't going to be working. So we had to do a pretty quick turnaround about um, maintaining the staff safety while balancing the kind of the rules of our division. And how did you maintain staff safety? What precautions were put in place to ensure their safety as they carried out both their routine tasks and ensuring businesses complied with the city's stay-at-home mandate? Very quickly, I have four program administrators that report to me, and then they're responsible for the specific program areas. We very quickly came up with a plan uh, for the majority of the staff to be on excused time to abide by the stay-at-home order, since a bulk of the establishments that we would normally interact with were gonna be closed and not operating anyway. We kind of came up with a skeletal crew of maybe about 15 people that would maintain core services based on our continuity of operations plan. And um, we went ahead and implemented that plan. So from about March 18th to April 6th, the bulk of our staff were on excuse status and the rest of us, including myself, were still physically coming to the office and going out to specifically handle COVID-related complaints. So for establishments that were operating, that were not allowed to operate, for establishments that were letting people in, this was prior to the masking requirement. So we were essentially just enforcing the rules. Um, COVID has been very much evolving. So we've been trying to do our best of staying ahead of the curve when it comes from for to like a uh, an enforcement standpoint. Thank you. And, and just to clarify, most of the COVID calls that you respond to are complaints. Correct. During that time frame, we were only focused on COVID-related complaints, and we were also conducting an abridged socially distanced food safety inspection for those businesses that had to operate during COVID. So takeout food establishments, um, corner stores or bodegas or grocery stores. So we wanted to make sure that we were still conducting those proactive inspections from a socially distanced standpoint so that um, people would still, we would still maintain food safety because we didn't want to have a foodborne illness outbreak during the same time on top of COVID. The other item that we focused on was there were a handful of places that were already in the queue, new businesses that were needing inspection to open up and they were willing to change their operation to take out um, or delivery only. And we wanted to be fair because we started to see the potential economic impacts of all of this. So we wanted to be mindful of walking that tight tightrope between food safety and ensuring that you know there was access to safe and healthy food, and there was also you know um, a kind of a some form of economic continuity. All right, thank you. 
So if, if we could discuss uh, the business response to the, to the stay-at-home order and your investigations, uh, have you found private businesses to mostly be cooperating with the city's stay-at-home order? Has, has there been any particular industry that has been in violation or, or any particular hotspot? Sure. So I would say I, I'm truly pleased to report that the majority of the businesses have been in compliance and cooperating. The places that have been the most challenging have been the um, night, evening um, kind of club type of activities where, um, you know, folks would gather the late night um, active uh, bar slash club environments. Um, they have been throughout the pandemic trying to have, um, you know, trying to open with this caveat that, you know, we're not working during normal hours. We're not going to be working during the evening hours. So they can kind of just do this and still have parties and, and gatherings. So that's been the major issue and the major challenge. And we're addressing that. We most recently, about two weeks back, um, you know, because we also had to have a, uh, absorb some substantial budget cuts to our budget. Um, and so we most recently began um, kind of an evening operation to address these complaints of late night openers and, um, and the associated, you know, social distancing and violations um, because it doesn't take too many establishments to cause a, an increase or an upsurge in cases. So we're really trying to focus on getting a handful of the, um, and I'd say it's less than 1%, of people that are uh, establishments that are misbehaving. Uh, so I'm sorry, please forgive my ignorance here. Uh, it seems from the data I have, your division has fielded around 1,000 complaints since March 18th. Um, and that to me, uh, again, with my limited knowledge of your operations, seems like quite a large number of cases to handle with the budget cuts and staff reductions. Have you been able to respond to all of these cases promptly? Absolutely, and so 1,000 complaints is uh, a great deal of complaints provided that, but when you look at it from the perspective of 12,621 establishments, a thousand complaints is around a percentage, 1% or so. And um, we, we, our budget cuts that we absorbed cut out, um, you know, extra overtime and everything. I'm not a fan of cutting people's jobs or positions. So none of those were cut. We left um, positions vacant so that those positions that were in the queue to be filled, we just left them vacant. And that's how we absorbed the cuts. Um, you know, and I keep reminding everybody that uh, COVID is not, um, it, we're not immune from it. Me and my team are not immune from COVID. So, you know, we have to be mindful of protecting ourselves as well. And I am you know, I have a really great team of people that I get to work with on a daily basis. So I have uh, staff that are willing to work in the evening and um, try to get these complaints addressed. Um, you know, the re our service level goals, and we've been meeting those, um, you know, almost on 100% of the complaints um, have been within 48 hours. Uh, a fairly rapid response time. So I was just wondering, are there any other challenges that your office has had to adapt to besides these budget cuts and the reduction of staff available to respond to complaints and go on routine visits? 
Um, I don't think so. I think it, initially there was some concern, confusion about um, PPE and masking and all of that. And you may recall things changed. It went from no masking to all of a sudden everybody wearing a mask. So, um, but we were able to handle the process. We, we do a pretty decent job of distribution um, fairly quickly to our staff from just, that's just a system that's been built up over the past 10 years. So, um, you know, we have a really good process in place uh, for um, providing, you know, sanitize, uh, sanitizers, um, sanit um, sandy wipes, alcohol wipes, and things like that, so that our staff are minimizing, you know, and, and wiping things down when they touch door handles and things like that. Um, we are still doing socially distanced inspections, both for food establishments as well as interiors for rat uh, complaints and lead in healthy home complaints. Um, so we're very mindful of staff safety and all of that. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the major, one of the major challenging um, has been, um, you know, just making sure that people understand, the regulated industry understands that Philadelphia as a city of the first class, a home rules charter city, is allowed to have stricter requirements and regulations based on our caseloads compared to what the state is allowed to have. So just making sure we're doing a good job of educating folks. Um, one of the ways that we've done that is um, we heard the industry loudly and clearly that besides getting handouts on paper, they really prefer things are that are visual. And as adult learners, I can appreciate that. So we have created a couple YouTube videos about how to, you know, how to set up your outdoor dining. And they're about two and a half minutes there's a childcare one, there's a longer how to properly wash your hands one, and those are all available on the health department's YouTube channel. And so we've changed our mode of communication. Um, we did a lot of in-person trainings and um, you know, we, we very quickly adapted to technology and we're doing a lot of virtual presentations and trainings now for the regulated industry and that's been you know, being received well. Um, okay, I guess we could start probably with what you were doing before the pandemic. So if you could just give me a little bit of information about the work that you've been doing, providing hepatitis C care and counseling, and just kind of more information about your work with that. Yeah, of course. So uh, prior to COVID, my position was as a perinatal hepatitis C coordinator. Um, and what's exciting is here in Philadelphia, we're actually the first um, city to have a program specifically devoted towards um, outreach and education um, for women with hepatitis C who are pregnant or recently gave birth. So in my role, I reach out to women and first provide them some, you know, guidance and counseling on their infection and that there is a chance of transmission from mom to baby, even though it's a small risk, there still is that risk. And then offer them linkage to services and care, whether it be hepatitis C treatment, um, we've expanded our services right now to also be able to link individuals for substance use treatment as well if it's applicable and then offering to follow up with their child's pediatrician as well to give the pediatrician insight on screening recommendations for infants exposed to hepatitis C 
And then I collect a lot of data, both from mom asking her questions about her infection and also from healthcare providers, whether it's prenatal care or pediatric providers as well. That's awesome. Um, is there, is there like a reason you went into this? Like how did you kind of find out? It's something that I think is interesting, but definitely wouldn't be the first thing that I would think to, to work in. I, it's something that would come across my radar. Is there a reason you chose to, to work in this? Yeah, I think when I first got into public health, um, I definitely had an interest in infectious disease, but also have had interest in uh, substance use uh, disorders and mental health. And I think with hepatitis C, the primary driver of transmission is through infected blood and the number one risk factor right now for hepatitis C in Philadelphia is through injection drug use. So it kind of combined my interest in um, substance use, but also um, infectious disease. And so when I first started working in hepatitis C, um, it was just as like a hepatitis investigator. But then when um, the opportunity to move into the perinatal role opened up, that was really exciting for me because I like that it's more of a targeted intervention for women. It kind of is in the vein of maternal and child health as well. So I was excited for that. It's really cool. It definitely does sound like you're really interested in what you do. Um, so how has COVID-19 kind of affected that? Have your operations changed? You know, how is I guess you specifically, and also just like the organization you work in, how has it, it kind of been affected by this? Yeah, so when COVID first hit, um, you know, those first couple weeks in March when we had our first case, and then all of a sudden the cases started pouring in, um, almost everybody at the health department had to, um, you know, participate in some way in the COVID response. So a lot of us were pulled off of our regular responsibilities and had new ones under COVID. And so I still continued on some follow-up with my regular role, um, specifically just with women who have hepatitis C, but I didn't follow up with healthcare providers anymore. And mainly because one, um, not a lot of people were going to actual in-person visits, so they may not have been screened for hepatitis C. Infants weren't going to pediatrician visits, so they wouldn't have been screened as well. Um, and so there was that reason, but also we didn't want to burden healthcare providers who were also responding to this huge um, you know, pandemic. And so uh, we definitely had to shift our focus for a while. And just now, um, there's been a COVID division started at the health department in July. And so all of us that were working on other disease areas and specialties have now been transitioning back into our regular roles as we've trained on new folks that have been hired to replace us. Really cool. I'm just, one second, I'm going to silence my notifications real quick so that they don't keep interrupting us. Um, okay, here we are. Good. Um, okay, that's really cool. So as I, I kind of mentioned in your introduction, um, you had two COVID-specific roles um, in addition to what you'd already been working on. Could you just maybe give me information about them, um, you know, a little bit of background, you know, your involvement with them, you know, whatever you want to talk about. Sure. Um, so in the beginning of the response, I was asked to be the liaison with the State Department of Health. And that role basically was any inquiries or questions that were sent to the State Department of Health from a Philadelphia resident, Philadelphia healthcare provider or facility um, that should have been sent to us. 
they would forward those inquiries and questions to me. And then if I was able to follow up on them, I would. If not, I would capitate them to the appropriate people within the department. And so this could really be anything from a Philadelphia resident who had symptoms or they were scared about what to do because they came in contact with someone with COVID or they were looking for places to get tested for COVID, answering questions like that. Um, for healthcare providers, it may have been, what test do I use um, to run this COVID test? What laboratory do I send it to? Um, we have a small outbreak, what do we do? Those sort of questions, or maybe long-term care facilities looking for PPE. So it kind of varied a lot. And so I was trained to answer a lot of those questions, but if I couldn't personally answer it, then there was you know, a lot of people above me that I could pass those questions along to. So that was my first role. And then um, I also got enlisted to um, be a supervisor for a team of screeners for an isolation and quarantine site that we primarily were using for folks experiencing homelessness or unsheltered individuals who needed a place to stay um, and isolate while they, um, you know, for 14 days after a positive COVID result or while they were still pending a test result if they were symptomatic for COVID. And so that position really, um, I did screening myself, which meant following up with whoever referred the patient to collect medical information on them. Uh, we needed to make sure that folks were gonna be safe while they isolated with us. So we had to make sure they didn't have any you know, dire health conditions or ambulation issues. And if they had substance use, that they were maintained on a um, MAT, a medicated assistant treatment, things like that. Um, so yeah, two very, very different roles, um, but was kind of doing them both at the same time until actually this week, I, I'm finally off of all my COVID jobs. <laughs> so it's exciting to be back on hepatitis full time. That's cool. That, that's good to hear. Um, so I guess it sounds like a lot of what you were doing would be connecting people with another resource. Did that kind of reinforced you the idea that you know it's a team effort or you know not not to put words in your mouth but I'm just like wondering it seems like a lot of what you're doing is is you know hearing a question from one person and getting them to someone else who has a, a better answer did that like how did that influence your perception yeah definitely I think in general like I mentioned all of us in different disease areas and departments were all pulled into COVID response together and so we all had to learn how to work together and communicate and people I'd never worked with before were all working together. It was definitely a group effort and was, you know, we were all working overtime and also like learning on the fly as guidance would change from the CDC. We'd have to be the first ones to be aware of it and update our recommendations. And, um, you know, so it definitely was a group effort and, um, it was really awesome. It was like cool to get to know other people in different departments and, and see that kind of unfold. So yeah, I would agree with that. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned that you worked a lot, a lot of overtime. I know a lot of us don't have much by way of a personal life right now, just because we can't really do much. But do you ever find that you maybe had an, an issue balancing, you know, doing all of your work and then also maybe any other commitments you had outside of work? Did it ever feel like know you, you just had so much to get done or, or you know what was your experience with that yeah absolutely I think for a while there it was 
crazy. Like I said, we were working six, seven uh, days a week and overtime. And so taking time not only for yourself and like practicing self-care, which you all know is so important, but also, um, you know, keeping up with family and friends. It was a challenge um, and continues to be a challenge. I think now is the time it's finally like we can all take a deep breath <laughs> and maybe enjoy some you know, time with, with family at a distance, of course. But, um, but yeah, I, it was definitely hard to juggle um, everything and keep up with, with other responsibilities during this time. But I'm excited that the COVID division is there now. We've got a lot more people hired on. There's a lot more hands. So it's definitely alleviated a lot of that. Did any of your work ever put you in a place where you might be interacting with people who could have COVID or you would need to have PPE or was it mostly handled remote? For me personally, I was always remote. Um, there were some individuals on my screening staff that um, if we needed to do like a, a big screening at like a shelter, for instance, and we wanted to have somebody directly there to interview clients and get the medical information. Uh, we did have some screeners on my staff go out and do that, and so they would be equipped with the proper PPE and all of that. But I personally um, have been working remote and haven't interacted with anybody who's COVID positive. That's nice, that's good to hear. Um, I guess, you know, we kind of acknowledged how now there's a, a COVID response team that will be kind of handled, but then going back more towards your work with hepatitis C care for, for women, um, you think there'll be significant long-term impacts on that because of this pandemic, or do you think in a year or two it'll kind of, it will be like it never really happened for your specific work? Yeah, I think there's going to be some long-term ramifications. I think to begin with, you know, the way that people access care changed during the pandemic. So you're going to see um, the effects of that, whether people were less likely to be engaged in prenatal care because of COVID, maybe out of fear, or maybe less likely to bring their child to the pediatrician for the same reason. Um, but I also think, you know, COVID had effects on people's employment and employment may affect their housing stability. And as far as their competing priorities that these people may face, hepatitis C might kind of, you know, get knocked off the priority list for sure, because it's a disease that somebody can have for several years before having any real damage to their liver. So some folks might wait to seek out treatment for it if there's these other competing priorities. So I feel like as far as my outreach and encouraging folks to get linked into care, we may need to build in other services and our interventions to help with those competing priorities, whether it's, you know, helping folks with transportation or, you know, making the phone call for them to get their appointments set up or helping them with, you know, insurance and things like that. I definitely think COVID has affected, um, you know, just people in so many ways. So I think that's going to affect how people access care moving forward for at least I don't know how long, I can't predict that, but definitely for the foreseeable future. And then I think our data trends are gonna be affected by the stay-at-home order too. So when we look at um, you know, trends of people accessing care for hepatitis, being tested for hepatitis, we've been looking at that data for years now. And I think you're gonna see this huge difference this year because of COVID. So it'll be interesting for like data analysis and research purposes, how this is gonna affect that as well.
now. Um, I guess if you if you could go back to March um, or maybe a little earlier and redo the past five or so months, um, knowing what you know now, is there anything that maybe you'd do differently um, in any role you've had or even just, you know, outside of your work? Whew, that's a good question. I think, I think I would have liked to have known it was going to last a lot longer than I thought. <laughs> I mean, I was never under the false illusion that it was only going to be a two-week thing. I've heard people say that where they were like, I thought it was only going to be two weeks. Like we were told to stay home for two weeks. But um, I definitely, I think, you know, it would have been good to equip myself for knowing how long it was going to last and then knowing when to take breaks, when to take time for self-care, um, knowing how much to take on and when to say no. Um, I think that all would have been helpful to know <laughs> for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, def I definitely would have liked to know how long – I mean, and I know even now we don't know how much longer, but yeah, it would have been nice to be to know that it was going to last a little longer than I think we all hoped it would. Um, yeah, yeah. People might feel like ignorance is bliss, and they wouldn't want to know. But I'm one of those people I like to plan, so I'm like, I would have liked to know for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, I guess how do you see your contribution maybe fitting into the the wider fight against COVID? I think the impact I had in any role was probably with the isolation and quarantine sites. Um, you know, I helped keep our protocols up to date and keep all of our screening staff um, up to date with, with any changes. And I think we were able to pass along a really strong um, system in place to the folks that took it over. And so I hope that, you know, folks will continue to be safe. Housley or sorry, how safely <laughs> um, because of those processes um, and protocols. So I think that's probably where I made the most impact. The COVID-19 epidemic is already showing the long understood, but still not fixed or at least ameliorated impact the virus has on the poor and certainly the homeless. And what is becoming clear is the impact it has on those of a certain race. This has alarmed not only those health professionals, but all of us to re-examine sincerely what is meant by healthcare for all and social justice. This renewed sense of social justice has gained traction in all three sectors, public, private, for-profit, and nonprofit, and in new ways. When asked about what do public health administrators or healthcare administrators do? I respond that they are in the business of improving the human condition. There is much uncertainty in the COVID-19 response from science to the systems. A best practice approach is to do what is reasonable, do what is responsible, seek and take accountability and communicate. And we have, um, you know, routine daily check-in calls with the um, supervisors and management. And then we've had a couple programmatic calls, you know, by program with me. And then we've had, um, I believe, two calls specific with the entire 
uh, Environmental Health Services Division, specifically as it pertained to um, systematic racism and, you know, the things that my staff are experiencing in the field and making sure that um, those points that people are feeling supported and those points are brought up so that we can take the needed appropriate action to break down any walls that need to be broken down. Um, as a division, EHS is extremely diverse, um, but again, we do experience a lot of things um, in the field and elsewhere. And, um, you know, I was, when I first started with the division there, I was one of two women and I think maybe one the only female minority. And since that time, you know, we are, we now look like the face of the city of Philadelphia. We're very diverse. And I do take a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, it's been an active choice in creating environments that give everybody an equal opportunity and equity when it comes to interviewing and, and, and hiring in those just a brief aside here, you mentioned that your division responded to the social justice movement, which has been uh, so prominent recently. Uh, may I ask what form this response took? So, um, you know, the first and foremost kind of form is um, uh, an overall just a phone call about the topic and the issue and asking staff, checking in with them to see how they're doing, how they're feeling. And um, working with the staff uh, regarding their experiences and how we can be supportive as a division when they are experiencing certain things, making sure that the conversation is present and ensuring that there is any kind of systematic forms of racism, whether it's to, for the, the regulated industry that we're assisting or internally communications or external communication that all of that is um, addressed and there are, you know I get to work with a lot of very smart people on my staff they're pretty terrific and so we just kind of had a forum to discuss these issues and bring them to the surface and you know what I know is um, that when you acknowledge the issue and you start figuring out well, what are the, the triggers and some of the staff experienced things recently since all of it and they brought it forward and and having a safe space for folks to go ahead and discuss is really great um they have come up with some tangible um you know tangible options that we can change or fix and we've been working on those were there any skills you found useful maybe specifically for the work that you were doing or just kind of in general over the past several months to help you manage everything or you know adapt to new situation yeah i think um the number one thing for me and, and and i think others working on this response was the importance of good communication whether it was internal you know with with other people we were working with having open and honest communication but also when we were talking to lay people, having, you know, being empathetic and understanding, you know, in the first couple of weeks, the phones were ringing off the hooks and people were frantic and they were scared. And I think um, being empathetic and understanding their situation, um, acknowledging that we still had a lot of uncertainty, but giving folks, um, you know, assurances and action steps 
that they could take, I think really empowered people and, and, and definitely made a difference. And then I think in the isolation and quarantine project that I've worked on, um, sometimes I'm speaking directly to folks who are experiencing homelessness and, you know, having that same um, empathetic understanding sort of way of talking, I think really helped folks feel better about their situation because it was scary. I think people, you know, thought that they were going to die or thought that they um, wouldn't have a place to stay while they were sick. And so I think um, communication definitely made a big difference there. That's awesome. Glad to hear that. Um, I guess to, to speak specifically um, to people who are experiencing homelessness, I feel like maybe it's not a group that's always, you know, that everyone's thinking about. Are there, could you just talk about maybe some of the specific challenges that they would face dealing with something like COVID-19, whether or not they have it, but just kind of, you know, the way that everything is, are there specific challenges that they are kind of dealing with? Yeah, for folks experiencing homelessness, there's often overlaps with, um, you know, other mental health conditions or maybe substance use um, disorders and things like that. And so, you know, being sick on top of that, of course, exacerbates um, those type of conditions. But in addition, this is just, this, you know, folks that don't have a place to lay their head, they might not have familial support to take care of them while they're sick. And so I think that makes it even more scary and also, you know, more likely to spread in, in communities. So I think, I think that becomes a real challenge and, and sometimes even locating folks if they're they might access care to get tested and then they might wander off and we might not be able to get in contact with them because they might not have a cell phone. And so these are all, you know, challenges and we've tried to work around those as best as we can and, and get folks housed directly from where they're being referred to, um, to our isolation and quarantine sites. That's helped um, that tremendously. But, but yeah, I think this is a group of people that are more vulnerable and definitely more at risk for COVID because they don't have a place to safely quarantine and, and stay home at. Thank you. So is, is, there, is there anything else you'd like to add? I've, I've gone through my questions. Is there anything you think we've missed? Would you like to provide a message for the general public or, or perhaps as, as you were alluding to the, a, a national audience? Um. No, I think your questions were, were pretty terrific. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, I think my only message would be that, um, you know, we, we have to be mindful of the science and we have to really um, pay attention to what the experts are telling us and um, pay heed to that. And kind of all of us need to stay in our lane of expertise and do what we need to as a, a national community to address this. Um, I think that if we all worked collaboratively and all kind of said, listen, you know, not to sound um, hokey, but, you know, united we stand and divided we fall. So if we all unite under certain core principles of I care enough to wear a mask, um, I care enough to wash my hands. I care enough to social distance. Um, and I care enough about the person that I know, as well as the person that I don't know, to unite behind all of these causes 
then I think that we can really, um, we can really beat this thing. I think that um, right now we are, you know, and I'm not speaking again of locally. I think locally I'm, I'm really grateful and, and super um, impressed with everything in our city. Um, and even our state partners and our bordering states and the counties, we all work together. Um, you know, I, I also work with a lot of the big cities, environmental health directors. So, um, but I just think that we just need some better messaging and to be reminded of the fact that we are supposed to be, it's in our name, right? The United States of America, not do whatever we feel like States of America. So I think that we really need to um, kind of uh, unite behind all of this. And I think it's our, it's our divisions that have caused us um, and put us in this harm's way for, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans dying and millions of people with COVID. And, um, so I think if we can maybe get back to being united and agreeing that we can focus and work, you know, cause that's what we're good at in this country. That's what we're really good at rallying behind, uh, uh, you know, a unified purpose and, um, you know, an agreed upon foe and here this particular foe is COVID, right? I think if we can do that, um, we can, we can really beat this thing. Thank you. Inspired by what you were just saying, do you see any lingering societal impacts for our country as a result of the pandemic? You mentioned the fight against COVID uh, as offering a, a chance to, to bring Americans together. Do you see that as a potential legacy of the virus? You know, it's all going to come down to um, individual choice and people. As I mentioned, you know, there is part of responsibility of being um, in America is taking all of the different information that we get, right? Because unlike other places and spaces around the world, um, our information systems are not controlled by government. And at the end of the day, it becomes individual choice, right? As it should be, right? We are the land of the free and, and, and we do have free choice. And, and, but with that free choice comes a lot of responsibility. And, um, you know, so it's a matter of, we all are in this together and we all need to make, make a choice and make a decision. And if we make um, the correct choice based on the information from the scientific experts of what we need to do to fight this pandemic, um, I think that we have an opportunity to become a more connected, um, a more connected uh, United States. Well, um, I guess if you if you could go back to March um, or maybe a little earlier and redo the past five or so months, um, knowing what you know now, is there anything that maybe you'd do differently um, in any role you've had, or even just you know outside of your work? Ooh, that's a good question. I think, I think I would have liked to have known it was going to last a lot longer than I thought. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I was never under the false illusion that it was only going to be a two-week thing. I've heard people say that where they were like, 
I thought it was only going to be two weeks. Like we were told to stay home for two weeks, but um, I definitely, I think, you know, it would have been good to equip myself for knowing how long it was going to last and then knowing when to take breaks, when to take time for self-care, um, knowing how much to take on and when to say no. Um, I think that all would have been helpful to know <laughs> for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, def I definitely would have liked to know how long. I and I know even now we don't know how much longer, but yeah, it would have been nice to be to know that it was going to last a little longer than I think we all hoped it would. Um, yeah, yeah. People might feel like ignorance is bliss, and they wouldn't want to know. But I'm one of those people I like to plan, so I'm like I would have liked to know for sure. I think if I was to leave listeners with anything, it's just to. Remember that COVID is not over. Um, it's more important than ever to continue wearing a mask and practice social distancing and not having parties with hundreds of people and all of that. Um, you know, I think there's this false sense that it's over and there's, there's always misinformation out there. And so, you know, keeping, keeping yourself informed and continuing to be safe about your decision-making, I think is really important. We have an added challenge in responding to COVID-19 and the prevention, protection, and mitigation strategies we use in order to mitigate these challenges. The COVID-19 outbreak has brought to the fore the value of how public health and safety preparedness and the healthcare response need to be coordinated. Most people do not understand that these two systems, system of public health and system of healthcare, they have distinct functions, distinct systems, distinct skill sets of the personnel. While there is overlap, the COVID-19 issue puts that overlap on steroids, so to speak. Since 9-11-2001, the importance of emergency preparedness has taken on new meaning. While there is much criticism of our national and state leaders being caught flat-footed or off guard with the COVID-19 virus outbreak, the nature and scope of this outbreak could, have been predict could not have been predicted. Public health, healthcare, and public officials will do more than simply go back to the drawing board. While each sector, including private business and industry, may have been working on disaster and sustainability plans, much of this was done in a vacuum. This risk management step to plan, prevent, respond, rebuild, and reformulate will have new meaning. For example, where are the nonprofit health organizations in our sustainability planning? Has business and industry been involved enough in the healthcare crisis exercises? What went wrong with the modeling, the epidemiological modeling? How can we improve our health communications given the new normal media has an insatiable appetite to polarize even a health crisis? What happened to common sense and risk management consideration by not saying, no, to putting COVID-19 positive older adults in elder care homes and facilities filled with those most at risk. 